Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. We're recording this episode on the evening of August 23rd, an eventful day with news coming out this afternoon from Russia that Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, and six others, along with crew, may have died in an Embraer business jet that nosedived in Tver Oblast in Russia, having left Moscow and flying in the direction of St. Petersburg, or perhaps, as some have suggested, Putin's residence at Valdai, which is on the way to St. Petersburg. My two guests tonight to discuss the implications of this are Rob Lee, a Russian military analyst at Foreign Policy Research Institute, and Jack Margolin, author of an upcoming book on Wagner Group and a terrific expert on the topic. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Dimitri. So, Jack, maybe we start with you. We, we don't know a lot right now. We don't have confirmation that these people have even died. But if we just assume that the flight manifest is a reflection of who was actually on the plane, and if you can believe the news coming out of Russia, it looks like Prigozhin, it looks like Dmitry Utkin, who really founded Wagner, are among the dead, along with a few other Wagner folks. But a lot of the commanders that have been responsible for much of the success of Wagner, the field commanders, are it appears to be are still alive and kicking and presumably are in various places across Africa, maybe Belarus, maybe recuperating in parts of Russia. But what is your best take right now on what is going to happen to Wagner if we just assume that Prigozhin and Utkin are indeed dead? Can it continue without them? Can field commanders pull it together? What is your best sense of where things are moving toward? Yeah, that's a great question. And ruling out the possibility of body doubles, et cetera, any more twists in this plot. Um, I think that whatever form Wagner would survive in after this would be drastically different from what we've seen so far. Uh, the, the the incentives of the group, things like the the discipline, the the command structure, a lot of that has been, I think, unique to this iteration of Wagner. And you're going to lose that without Prigozhin or Utkin. Um, even if the field commanders that have combat experience and that really form the backbone of the organization are retained, um, even if the, the, the Russian military trims bring this under the MOD or graft it onto another structure, I don't think it's going to be able to have the same level of trust that Wagner previously enjoyed. That means not having the same access to recruitment, equipment. Um, they're simply not going to have the same scale. And I think that would really impact their, their operations throughout places like Africa and you know, lately Belarus. Um, so the picture of what I see possibly happening here and diminishment of Wagner to appear more like some of the other PMCs that we see out of Russia, using PMCs here in, squ- in scare quotes, um, obviously those are under pretty direct authority of security services in Russia. But, but let, me, let but, me challenge you on that, Jack, because these other PMCs that have been started by Gazprom, Fakil, and all these, even Orthodox Church has started one. I mean, most of them don't really have combat experience, right? A lot of these people are sort of glorified security guards that have been recruited and pressed into these services. Wagner is unique, right? Because these guys actually have a lot of combat experience, both before joining Wagner in the military and since then. And that's what makes it such a fairly effective force, is it not? It is. Um, I think that that's a key part of it, right? Like these guys have seen action in a variety of theaters that's pretty hard to find a parallel for amongst even the Russian armed forces. Um, in recent memory. However, I think that their ability to be effective is largely informed by things like the command structure that they have, which we can gather from both the statements of fighters and from leaked documentation, 
um, and particularly the independence that field commanders and lower echelons of command are given in the field um, in order to be reactive or be adventurous in terms of the tactics they employ. Um, if we compare them to something like Redut, another PMC that employs a lot of experienced fighters, including people they pulled over from Wagner, um, we can see that their performance in the field, at least what we've seen of it, is very different. And the other aspect that's different is the fact that Redut has, has historically fulfilled roles that are very unlike those of Wagner. Prior to the war in Ukraine, they were really doing site security, um, fulfilling essentially lower risk roles, which is an area that many of these PMCs seem to gravitate towards. In Ukraine, they tend to have gravitated towards deploying men to the front and really focusing on how many bodies they can field as opposed to effectiveness on the field, looking for symbolic victories like like Wagner and Bakhmut. Rob, let me go to you. We were talking before we started recording, you and I, about some of your predictions, the predictions of our friend Mike Kaufman post-mutiny in June, and you guys got it pretty right on what was going to happen to Wagner and Prigozhin. What are your reflections on the day and what Jack has said about the future of Wagner? Do you agree that Wagner, the old Wagner, is basically dead and whatever happens to it going forward will be very, very different from before? Sure. Um, so, you know, back when the, the mutiny happened, my initial thought was that, you know, we heard these kind of terms from Dmitry Peskov about this agreement that Wagner would go to Belarus and, you know, potentially that they have, you know, they came to some kind of agreement. And it was pretty clear at the time that that was not likely to be a long-term solution. And it was pretty clear that they kind of reached, you know, a short-term compromise that could have people save face. But long-term, this is not workable. And, you know, I my view, it was basically that, you know, once Prigozhin had shown himself to be a threat to Putin, that, you know, it would take time. But at some point, um, when the Russian security services were back in a better position to force the issue, they would try to either force him out of Wagner or they would try to replace Wagner and his role overseas in Africa and other countries. Because really, Wagner plays this really important role in, um, you know, in supporting Russian foreign policy um, and, and as, you know, basically as an arm of the, of the Russian government, even though it has, you know, a degree of autonomy. Um, so it's not surprising that, you know, they, they took some kind of action. Um, you know, as you said before, let's qualify all this by saying, you know, we don't know the full details yet. So, you know, we're, we're talking about this. But, you know, my view we're looking at today, you know, that there's often um, when people die in Russia, a lot of people always often say, you know, suspicious. This is, you know, they, they kind of assume it's assassination. A lot of time that's not true. Uh, in this case, you know, I, I think this looks like it was a deliberate attempt to kill him. And, and I think, you know, the footage we've seen so far of, of the plane, it looked as though maybe one of its wings had uh, was clipped off. You know, th there are sounds apparently of explosions in the air by, for my witnesses, kind of consistent with, you know, uh, use of air defense. Um, and, you know, the fact that this was Evgeny Prigozhin, Dmitry Lutkin, he's really key leadership of Wagner. Um, that, that'd be a pretty massive uh, coincidence to say this is this, this occurred and that it was an accident. So I, I think it's I think I do think it is probably deliberate. Um, uh, and but but it doesn't before, mean even if it's deliberate, Rob, it doesn't necessarily mean it's Putin. Right. This could have been Shoigu settling scores. Right. This this did not have to necessarily be an order directly from Putin. So, you know, I think after the mutiny um, and even before. Right. I, mean, I think that was astounding about the mutiny itself is that, you know, Putin likes to play different factions in both the Russian government and in kind of in, in private enterprise uh, against each other to kind of, you know, maintain power. And what was shocking about this development is that before this, it was clear that he was playing Wagner off the MOD. And I think oh, during the Battle of Bakhmut, he increasingly 
was getting frustrated with what Prigozhin was doing. And at the end of that battle, when the MOD was trying to force all private, you know, military companies or these kind of volunteer groups, these always pseudo groups to, to sign contracts on the MOD, Putin came out and said, I support this. Right. And that, that was the clear moment was Putin took a side and he was very clearly saying, I'm, I'm supporting the MOD on this issue. And Prigozhin did not listen to that. And that's why when he did the mutiny, it was the act of defiance, not just against the MOD, but against, you know, above that. And so I think once that occurred, once there was this, this you know, threat to Putin, and I, I, I don't think Prigozhin was trying to replace Putin or anything along those lines, but what he did was was a public threat to Putin nonetheless. And I think after that, Putin kind of came to the, you know, the view um, that, you know, this is not someone I'm, I'm allowed to, you know, maintain a power position anymore. And that, you know, once, once we, um, you know, we're in a position to do so, I'm going to allow the security services to push him out. And I think there's always been frustration from some Russian security services about Biden's role. Clearly, the MOD has, has had issues with, with Biden during this war. And I think at this point, basically, after the mutiny, Putin was going to side with them completely because they were more loyal, whereas, whereas Prigozhin was not loyal. And that was a, you know, an enduring kind of uh, risk to him long term. And again, I, I think, you know, when the mutiny happens, even though, you know, clearly Russian intelligence services had some idea this was going to happen, I think Putin was kind of procrastinating. I don't think he he took the kind of uh, strong decision to to stop it. But once it happens, then I think he was fully on board with secure, was supporting all these different other factions against Prigozhin. And that once they're in a strong position to force the issue, I think he was going to support that. It wasn't it wasn't clear at the time this would necessarily be uh, an assassination. But I think it's you know whether no, in some way or another Prigozhin was going to be pushed out, and it was a question of how they would do this. And I think the timing relates to basically FSB, GRU, different Russian government organizations, they had to figure out how to basically put plans in place to replace Wagner, to replace its role overseas, and to make sure they could do this where it would kind of have, you know, minimal disruption to those other kind of overseas activities. But don't you think, and and I don't want to get too far into speculation because there's still so much we don't know, but like killing someone with a SAM missile seems like the least efficient way to kill someone, to assassinate someone. And also the riskiest because, A, there's no question about attribution. You can't claim this was, you know, mafia, Razborki, gangland warfare, and some, you know, gangster that had a problem with Prigozhin tried to assassinate him. And two, like, there's just a lot of factors that are problematic in terms of the plane can take off late, it can take a different path, right? So if you're trying to do an assassination, it seems like there's, much easier ways to do that than than using a SAM battery. So, you know, there's a question in this case, because obviously um, the Russian services have assassinated people overseas before, defectors and other people. And we, we know that, you know, poisoning has been one of the the, the, the means of choice here. Um, in this case, you know, he, 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 Russia may have been uh, happy to make this a kind of overt uh, step. Um, and... You know, I think the other factor here, too, is that it wasn't just Prigozhin. It was Utkin. It was all these other kind of important figures on that plane. And it was an opportunity to, you know, get rid of all of them at once. And, you know, maybe there are other opportunities to just kill Prigozhin, but maybe other ones wouldn't have been there. At this point, it was it was an ability to kind of, um, you know, go after all these people at once. Uh, again, assuming that this was a deliberate act, we don't know that for certain. But if if that if, that's, if this is what it, what it appears to be, um, that might be one of the reasons. And, and again, also, you know, look, the the muni was an extraordinary event, right? And one of the big takeaways many people had was that because Prigozhin didn't crush it and that he came to some agreement that he looked weak, well, you know, ultimately, if the people who kind of perpetrated this, um, you know, were all killed in a pretty public way, 
you know, it's, it's maybe in a way of uh, Putin pushing back and trying to reassert control. And, you know, look, there isn't an obvious competitor to him. Um, there's always a question after this event that, you know, it didn't seem as though Prigozhin had really won long term. Um, and, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, uh, Putin may have reasserted his position in a pretty strong way. And, you know, th- again, over this war, we've seen many extraordinary things happen. And it's it's not that shocking that uh, Putin would be willing to do something kind of an overt way to send a signal to other people. So, Jack, there were other people on that plane, in addition to Prigozhin and Utkin. The ones that caught my eye were Propustin, Makarian, and Tatman. And what do you know about those people? And maybe talk as well a little bit about Utkin for people that may not be as familiar with Wagner as you are. Talk about his role both in starting the organization but also in ongoing running of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the three folks that you named there are the, the three sort of easiest to identify as, as Wagner fighters. Um, Propustin, Wagner fighter, had a personnel number, um, documented everything with his call sign, etc. Same goes for Makarian. Um, we know that he, for example, was in car. He got injured in Libya. He's listed amongst their list of 300s or folks that were, were injured in, in, in action. Um, Totmin, also another Wagner fighter, not a whole lot known about him. Um, and Matusiev is the one person in which there's really very little information. Um, Utkin is certainly, I think, the highest profile person on that aircraft other than Prigozhin himself. Um, he is the person that is the alleged namesake of Wagner, given that he has this, um, as often referred to sort of uh, diplomatically, fascination with the imagery of the Third Reich. Um, really likes uh, the, the composer, Richard Wagner. Um, reportedly used to go into combat wearing a, a German helmet from World War II. Um, Utkin had previously served with the Sylvanic Corps, which is sort of the predecessor to the Wagner group in some ways. It was the outcome of some other PMCs in Russia, specifically this one called Moran Security, which was pretty widespread, had like maritime security operations. In a lot of ways, wasn't that distinct on paper or in its activities from um, what we'd see from that sort of explosion of PMCs that happened around the time of the global war on terror, um, the the advent of piracy in Somalia, etc. Slavonic Corps, which grew out of that, was a much more adventurous project that was originally supposed to be based around uh, specifically site security in Syria, but grew into something that was actually going to undertake combat operations together with Syrian forces. Had a pretty disastrous episode in Syria in 2013, but a lot of the people that survived that and came out of Slavonic Corps then went on to serve with Wagner in their early days. Um, Utkin was with Wagner from the first. He is definitely one of the founding members. And to hear Wagner fighters tell it, he is one of the founding fathers of the group. Um, he ended up taking on a different call sign going by ninth. Um, still like to sign documents with either a, a large capital D or a, a SS. Um, so a very colorful figure. He had a lot of forward combat roles um, in, in Ukraine and apparently early on in Syria. But later on, he sort of retreated from that role and was, was less present on the battlefield than some of the other field commanders um, that were much more present and, and directly in combat and earned a lot of respect from their men in that way. Um, Valery Chakalov was another person um, who was on the flight. He's Prigozhin's deputy. He's been with Prigozhin since the days that predated uh, Wagner. He was with him, um, was a major figure in the Concord group of companies that won lucrative catering contracts that were really how Prigozhin made his fortune. And he was the general director of the company that then owned Yevropolis, which was uh, one of the major sort of commercial legal entities that supported Wagner Finance, paid fighters, brought people on in terms of contracts, and of course, uh, accepted payments for things like securing oil fields in Syria. So 
He's recently been accused by some Telegram channels in Russia of having engaged in corruption. I won't attempt to read read the tea leaves on that. Um, but Who isn't engaged another... in corruption in Russia? <laughs> so I think, I mean, it's an interesting question around Wagner because one of the reasons that we know a lot of what we know about the organization is that they've got, actually got very, very careful record keeping because of Prigozhin's preoccupation with avoiding corruption and graft. Um, everything, every purchase, every commercial agreement um, anytime money changes hands, it has to be documented. Um, so because of that, um, I think we can see a level of perhaps not professionalism, but at least competence and penalties for graft that led to a situation where in many ways Wagner could be more efficient than, say, the Ministry of Defense, where it's much easier to hide um, large levels of graft. And Rob, talk a little bit about, you, you've spoken previously on other podcasts and, and this one too, about how Wagner really was a phenomenal, well, phenomenal may be the wrong choice of words, but a very good fighting force in Ukraine, at least compared to the rest of Russian MOD. What do you think made them so effective and so good? Sure. Um, so, you know, first off, Wagner changed a lot during this war. So, you know, what it, be- what it began the war as and what it, you know, became during Bakhmut was, was two, you know, quite different things. Um, but basically, you know, when the war began in um, in Ukraine before this in 2014 and in Syria and elsewhere, um, you know, in Syria particularly, the Russian military was mostly playing a supporting role, whereas basically they were there to mostly provide artillery support, aviation support. They had special operations guys on the ground and, and advisors to the Syrian military. And mostly it was supposed to Syrian military did the fighting. And that was largely true. But when the Syrian military was not able to, to you know, take certain positions, do assaults, that's what kind of Wagner played this kind of other role where these, you know, this is not the Russian military. These are people who are not politically, um, casualties that are not politically sensitive for Putin, um, but who are more capable at, at taking positions than, you know, the Syrian army. And basically, you know, this was a, a uh, decision, I think, made by Russia's leadership that, okay, it's a good short-term option. The problem is that that prevented a lot of the Russian military from gaining uh, combat experience. And experience they did have was often, you know, doing convoys, doing kind of fixed site security, not assaulting positions and learning how to do that. And so basically, in Syria, Wagner became this elite kind of infantry force that was designed to assault. And they had a lot, they, they gained a lot of experience doing this. They often did not have that much support, um, which meant they had to kind of overcome things. They also developed that they became this kind of, you know, greater focus on promotion based on merit, because either you achieve the goal or you failed. And if you failed, you'd be, you know, demoted or you'd be released. And promotions were based on people who achieved their goals. And it became a very, you know, um, uh, uh, goal-oriented kind of organization, whereas the Russian military, you know, we, as we've seen is, you know, th- they're much more willing to accept people who, uh, you know, don't perform that well. And so when the war began, um, Wagner did not play a role initially. They got invited into it in late, late March. And at that point, the Russian military had taken heavy losses. Um, we found out that a lot of the Russian uh, motorized rifle units, you know, were, were very strapped on personnel. They're often, you know, two-thirds strength. They're very weak. And we also found that, you know, motorized rifle units were not very good at doing dismounted operations. And so when they started going to cities or, or other kind of assaults, it, it really it was the Russian military was leaning very heavily on the VDV, the Airborne Forces, Naval Infantry, putting spetsnaz in this kind of role. And, you know, the big kind of elements of the Russian military were not doing that great of a job. And so Wagner, when they came in, it was an additional force that could do assaults, that could go into to cities and had a greater ability, you know, was more competent at this, they had more experience. And one important aspect was that the the nature of these assault detachments, the way Wagner's uh, um, organized, assault detachments are you know roughly kind of a battalion size, roughly comparable to a Russian battalion, 
but the commanders are much, much more experienced. I mean, so, you know, the, the famous ones like Radabor or Zombie or Lotos, you know, these guys have, you know, 20 years of experience. They're often like in their 40s, 50s. Um, they have a tremendous amount of combat experience, whereas Russian battalion commanders, right, have, have much less because you get promoted for when you're a battalion commander to a regiment and so on, whereas these guys kind of stay in those roles because they have a lot of authority in those roles. And so Wagner was a So they're, more- they're kind of like the, the NCOs, right? I, I, I wouldn't say NCOs. I mean, it's, just, it's a different organization, right? Where basically yeah. you have the 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 uh, the officers don't get promoted; they kind of stay in these roles. But the roles are very, very important. They have a lot of autonomy, and so yes, you know, you're only in charge of maybe 300 guys, but you have you know a lot of independence, autonomy. Um, you can decide how to operate, and you're you're, you're put in a very important role. And so, it's, it's, in some ways, it's more it's more similar to special operations, but it's, it's really not that comparable either. But anyway, when um, you know, they, they put a key role in fighting for pasta and elsewhere in the spring, in the summer. And then when the Battle of Bakhmut began, um, what, you know, Prigozhin kind of decided over the summer was he decided that the prison population was something they could tap into and that there's a, you know, additional source of, of manpower. And one thing that was important, useful for Wagner in the spring was that the Russian military, because it's, it's based around um, a conscripts where they, you know, they, they draft people twice a year. Some of those guys sign contracts. That's how they get their personnel. They don't really go out and recruit. Whereas Wagner had a recruitment program. They had infrastructure across Russia to bring on people to go fight. And, and they, had, they had their own base in, in, uh, in, in Molkino where they trained people. And so they had these kind of infrastructure to quickly take on guys and deploy them. And of course, they can pay people pretty well. And so serving in Wagner actually became quite desirable. Some Russian soldiers during the war in Ukraine joined Wagner, signed contracts with them because it was, it was, they thought it was a better place to fight. Um, and so, um, for a variety of reasons, Wagner became useful. And then when they tapped into prisoners, it became a completely different organization, right? So maybe pre-war, it was maybe 5,000 strong, maybe less than that. Um, and obviously ballooned to, you know, multiple, you know, orders of magnitude larger during the Battle of Bakhmut, where you heard different figures of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000. I'm, I'm not sure what it was exactly. Um, and basically what they were doing is they were taking their existing assault detachments, right, about 300 men strong. They would then basically add on six to seven hundred man convict units to, to these uh, detachments, and they, they they would kind of experiment about how to use convicts effectively. Different attachments use them in a very different way, but these attachment commanders had a lot more autonomy, a lot more uh, ability to to use initiative than the Russian military. And basically, you know, Prigozhin he's kind of seen as a commander, but he's not really a commander. It's really kind of Utkin was more of the commander, but then it was also assault attachment commanders. They would receive an order or task. And they would figure it out themselves, right? They weren't kind of dictated how to do something. They figure it out themselves. And of course, they, they know they basically have to show results. Otherwise, there'll be issues. And so, you know, for a variety of reasons, Wagner was more effective. Once they started tapping the convicts, that became an important use of personnel, particularly before the Russian military really mobilized, right? So in a lot of the fighting in Bakhmut in, in October, November, December, right, the Russian military was just then mobilizing, trying to figure out how to do this. They weren't really fully up to, up to speed on that. Um, and so Wagner plays this kind of important role, but what was, it was really important to note is that Wagner is designed for assault. It wasn't designed for defensive operations, and the operations of Bakhmut in particular, it was dependent on MOD support. So in some cases, Russian military units were attached to Wagner. They came under Wagner's control. Once the, that battle ended, those units reverted back to MOD control. A lot of the support they were receiving was artillery. So VDV units, in many cases, it was artillery support from them. Or it was, you know, ATGMs or other kind of support it wasn't necessarily paratroopers assaulting positions. It's still Wagner doing it, 
but that was you know really critical support and then a lot of other things from aviation or other things um you know armor or other motorized rifle units play a really important role supporting Wagner and so I think some people came to this understanding that Wagner um was more independent than it was it was always dependent on the Russian military support for operations the Russian government support for things um and so anyways you know at the end of this battle we obviously saw these videos of Prigozhin you know increasingly complaining about Shoigu and Gorasimov one thing that's really important to note is that, yes, the, the amount of ammunition during the battle fluctuated that, that they received from the MOD, but Wagner was receiving far more support than most of the parts of the front. So there's assaults all of the winter in Avdivka and the Crimean area and, 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 and Vuldar, and yet Wagner was receiving a lot more artillery support throughout most, most of this, and they, they, they were able to kind of, you know, you know negotiate that kind of situation. Um, but ultimately, you know, as, as the battle blocking went on, Prigozhin was playing more and more of a role. Uh, that was clearly making people uncomfortable. It was clearly, I think, it was one reason why Gorasimov was put back in charge of the war in January. Was they, they, the MOD wanted to reassert control. He brought figures from Moscow who were not involved in the war as kind of deputies, like Soyukov and Kim and other figures who were not right, the, the right people for the for the, the positions. Um, it was very clear the MOD was was trying to re, reassert control, and it was clear at the end of this battle that once it ended, the MOD never wanted Prigozhin to be in a position where he could kind of dictate terms to the MOD. And and because the winter offensive failed, Bakhmut was the one place where there was some kind of success to the Russian military. So they kind of had to grin and bear it while the battle went on. Once the battle ended, it was very clear Shoigu Gorasimov, they wanted to kind of push Wagner out of the situation or subordinate them. And Putin obviously went along with it. And that kind of set the conditions for the mutiny that happened in, in, uh, in June. Jack, what is your sense to the extent that you've been able to ascertain it of how Wagner, whether it's field commanders and officers, as well as the regular infantrymen, viewed Prigozhin because he did not have a military background, right? He was much more of a manager, financial organizer, connector to the MOD and so forth, but not the strategic military genius that, uh, you know, was responsible for this campaign. So do you have a sense of how they viewed him both during the course of the fight in, in Bakhmut and, and the rest of Ukraine, as well as in Africa? To generalize, I'd say that there there's a fair amount of respect for Prigozhin, despite the fact that he had no real military background. Um, he has a pretty compelling story. And he's obviously really great at telling that story. and He's been really great at building a brand for Wagner. Um, and I think he's done a good job of walking the line between what I think would be self-parody around him pretending to be someone who is a commander calling shots on specific operations at the front. Um, as Rob said, a lot of that command authority was devolved. Um, and I think that was part of the reason that he was respected. He could really draw a firm line between himself and the organization that he could claim to have built, although he really only just was one of many playing a role in that. Um, and other organizations within the MOD, as well as other PMCs, um, especially later on, prior to, to Wagner withdrawing from Ukraine, um, he was pretty vocal about criticizing other PMCs, their lack of professionalism, um, and their general attitude towards the war. Um, so generally, the the limited number of folks that I've spoken to and the conversations that we can see these guys having online, they have a fair amount of respect for Prigozhin. Um, where there's not respect, there's an, at least an, an admiration for his ability to uh, make their enemies angry. Um, and the fact that in many ways, he's a symbol of sort of sticking it to an establishment that's upset them, to say nothing of how he stuck it to NATO, the West, etc. He was a master troll, right? I mean, his outbursts on Shoigu, the letters that he's written congratulating him, 
very facetiously on his birthday. I mean, they're just a masterpiece of, of trolling that I think even Elon Musk would be proud of. But, you know, th- there has been this persistent rumor for many years that Prigozhin, when he was oh, in prison in the 1980s for robbery, armed robbery, and all kinds of other nefarious activities, was actually raped in prison and made a petuch in Russian, which is in the Russian prison culture means you're the lowest person that is effectively untouchable, right? And even after you leave prison, no one from the prison culture should ever associate with you. Unclear whether that was true or not, but but it seems like even the rumor of that has not really affected his reputation, particularly when they started recruiting all these prisoners from, from the Zona, right? What do you make of that? I don't think that people bought it necessarily. I think that a lot of that felt like an information operation. Um, it felt like an, an attempt to undermine Prigozhin. Um, and I think that he had relationships that he built with people from his prison days. When he came out of prison, the stature that he was able to develop pretty clearly, quickly in private industry um, were things that he could rely on, where he didn't even really have to engage with a lot of those sort of uh, rumors directly. Um, we could certainly see other criticisms of him that he's engaged with very aggressively. Um, things like that he didn't really seem to give much oxygen to. Um, and I think that because of his credentials, because he had people that were themselves respected, um, that had a clear idea of who he was and were, were, were very open about singing his praises, um, he didn't have too much to be concerned about there. I do think some of the later uh, activities that I think we can variously attribute to likely starting with the security services to undermine Prigozhin are pretty interesting. Um, they weren't generally attacking him directly, but a lot of them attacked his family. So, for example, one of his daughters had her Telegram account pretty clearly hacked. A lot of videos were released that were uh, definitely not intended for public consumption that show her being really drunk or talking to her friends and sobbing and generally bragging about her wealth and sort of being a bratty rich kid generally, which I think in a vacuum maybe wouldn't look so bad, but that was happening right against the backdrop of Prigozhin's sort of uh, most heated criticisms of the, the Russian elite writ large. Um, and of course, she's in, when he was she's portraying doing... himself as a man of the people, right? Exactly. And uh, there was this sort of series of, of revelations through um, posts by, of course, anonymous telegram channels, et cetera, around his family, their wealth, and um, particularly they, their vacations to places like Dubai, uh, to say nothing of what Navalny's anti-corruption foundation put out around uh, their their holdings in, in places like Germany and his daughter's proclivity for show jumping and things like that. Rob, you mentioned your theory that, uh, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. that Putin, if it was indeed Putin that ended up assassinating Prigozhin, that the reason that they waited was that they needed to figure out some sort of resolution to the Africa adventure and how to replace Wagner in Africa. So if that is indeed going to be the case, where do you think the Africa effort goes from here? Do you think that they're going to find new PMCs to flow into Africa perhaps with less experience, both cultural experience, relationships on the ground, as well as combat experience? Do you think GRU itself will take over? I mean, they're all pretty busy in Ukraine right now. They've got their hands full. So how are they going to manage Niger, Sudan, Mali, all those places where they're trying to play a role? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, this is not a great time to do, you know, for, for the, the mutiny to happen. Because you said, right, the, the GRU, FSB, other, other security services should be very focused on the war. Um, you know, I, I think that the counteroffensive is is probably going to be winding down the next few weeks. 
So, you know, when this began, it was a quite kind of bad time because it's right when the counteroffensive was beginning. Um, and I think there was, you know, some some uncertainty about whether or not Ukraine would really be able to push, you know, quickly through the lines. Uh, Russian lines have, you know, held the last couple months. So, you know, they might they might feel as though they're in a better position to respond right now. Um, you know, I, th- there was there was news that uh, one of the vo- former Wagner commanders, the guy who's who's photographed with uh, with Putin when uh, Utkin and others um, received the Hero Russia Award in 2016, that he was, I think, willing to go to Redut and potentially that would be, you know, that Redut would be used as kind of the replacement and Redut was more subordinated to MOD. Um, I'm not sure, fully sure on exactly, you know, what, what happened. Obviously, it's going to be a big question right now. But, you know, one thing we heard after the mutiny happens is that there are a number of reports that Russian officials were going to a lot of these countries like Syria to uh, you know other countries in Africa um, where they're, they're, they were trying to reassert, reassert the kind of bilateral relations that it was a Russian government to, you know, other government relationship and not through Wagner. And so I think they were, they were making that effort. I think Sergei Lavrov was doing some of these trips, although I, I could be wrong. Um, I think that was well. You also you also had the the Africa summit a few weeks ago, right? That right. Putin held in Saint Petersburg, where some senior GRU officials attended with these leaders of African countries that came there. So there's a sort of all front push from the Russian government uh, from Putin on down to establish closer closer relationships in Africa. Right, and I think I think Prigozhin was there actually as well and took a photo. So yep. I mean, it must, must have been interesting uh, interesting to, to see. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think ultimately, you know, last, like, I mean, a lot of this we're not seeing publicly. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming the last couple months that, you know, the Russian government has looked at how can they reassert control? How can they, you know, make sure that the, their relationships with these, gov- these countries is a Russian government to, you know, government relationship and not going through Wagner. Um, and then of course, look, you know, Wagner's operations depend on the Russian government. Yes, they make money. Um, you know, with mining contracts or, or, or taking control of natural resources in other countries. But, you know, the, their equipment is flown there by the Russian Air Force. A lot of the equipment that's used is still from the Russian military. And, of course, the... the bio- I mean, there's a practical issue here, right? Because you can have all the money in the world, but how are you going to buy Panzer air defenses, right? Or... T-90 tanks, like, you know, you can't just buy them on a the credit card, right? So uh, right. For, you, for you to purchase them, you, you're going to need connections and MOD. Right, absolutely. And so, um, you know, and again, like a lot of Vider's operations in Africa, the countries, it's been a bit ad hoc. So it depends what the situation is, they'll deploy different kind of assets. So, you know, Libya, where it was much more of a kind of conventional fight, right? That's where Wagner had Ponsiers. That's where they're using other kind of high-end equipment. Whereas in other deployments, right, they can get by with, you know, with with kind of technicals or, or kind of, you know, they don't necessarily need tanks or other kind of vehicles. Um, so it depends a lot on that. But ultimately, it always depends on the Russian government. The Russian government has to support them, has to fly these things there. And in many cases, right, the, the, the local government, they're receiving Russian armor as well, like, you know, modernized BRDM2s, things of that nature. And so it, it's, a, it's a, you know, really important role for the Russian government. And so ultimately, if, if there's a risk of the Russian government not playing a role, Right, Wagner's operations in those countries, you know, would have to be very, very different. Um, so, you know, Jack may have a better idea, idea than I do. I'm not sure, sure exactly how this will work out. I think one thing that was was pretty obvious it was that um, r- the Russian government was going to try and find out whether or not all these assault ta- ta- detachment commanders of Wagner were going to be loyal to Prigozhin. They wanted to see probably whether or not they could replace Prigozhin and keep Wagner kind of as an organization under someone more, more, uh, you know, reliable. The fact that Utkin was apparently killed with Prigozhin today, right, might be a symbol that basically they could not break the two of them apart. 
Um, I think what's important also is that, you know, some of those key figures um, that were killed today, if, if, if you know, this is all is true, these are kind of people that, that are behind the organization of Wagner, whereas the attachment commanders, you know, w- w- as far as we know, are, are, have not been killed or, or you know, still alive. Um, and those are the guys that run combat operations, but can't necessarily kind of put the overall organizational framework together. Um, and so I think that might be what, you know, they kind of went after. But, you know, as, as Jack was saying before, um, a lot of the kind of connecting tissue in the center of gravity of Wagner is really these really experienced commanders, these assault attachment commanders. You know, Radabor has been in charge one since, you know, like 2015 or so, right? And, and um, many of these guys have done multiple deployments to Syria, Libya, elsewhere. And so they have a tremendous amount of influence and their role is really important. And so it's always been a question of, okay, if you want to replace these, if these guys leave, the, whatever organization you have is no longer Wagner because the culture will be different. The experience will be different. It'll be something new. Um, now, you know, over time, they may, Russia may be able to, to figure out some new organization that can, you know, perform that role, but there's going to be differences and, you know, the, the may, other issues may come about, right? There might be more, in, you know, uh, competition within the group. Um, you know, there might, any number of kind of things can come up and ultimately it's most speculation at this point, but, you know, it, it will certainly be interesting to watch. Obviously there's, you know, a lot of Vince going on Mali and elsewhere that's at, at right now and, you know, Wagner's role or whoever can replace them is going to be a thing, something to look for. And as you mentioned, right, Russia still needs personnel for fighting Ukraine. And so the MOD is still focused on, on Ukraine as the most important mission for the Russian Ministry of Defense right now. And, you know, I think I think they're happy with someone else kind of dealing with these um, deployments in, in, in other countries. But of course, they don't want someone or an organization that's going to compete with them. That's a threat to them. And so, you know, they're, they're going to look for some kind of alternative. Yeah, I mean, if you as a Russian soldier have a choice of going into the meat grinder of Ukraine or going to a fairly cushy fight in Mali, right? It's probably not even close. Yeah, you know, I think, um, so during a lot of the fight in Bakhmut, right, professionals were playing a role. But I think Prigozhin cares more about his professionals and, and, and whether or not they're wounded or killed than the Russian Ministry of Defense cares about most of the soldiers. Because ultimately, every one of those guys, the professionals, are guys that can be used, um, you know, in, in Mali, in Kar, and other countries where they can, you know, perform contracts and you want to have quality personnel, right? The quality really matters in those countries. You have fewer people doing his jobs. So I think that was really important. I think one of the reasons why convicts became the main option was this expendable thing where Wagner can still play a role in Ukraine. It can still kind of increase political clout for Prigozhin, but maybe at a less of a cost to Prigozhin and to Wagner's organization because these are more expendable people. And we talked to some of the people um, you know, who fought against Wagner in Bakhmut on the flanks. You know, on the flanks, it, it was largely convicts, right? There wasn't much professionals inside the city itself, depending on which assault detachment was fighting, they'd fought in different ways. Sometimes it'd be kind of three waves of convicts first to, you know, force Ukrainians to use up ammunition, to expose kind of truce of weapons. And the professionals would come maybe in the fourth or fifth wave, right? And, and they would be more competent. At that point, they'd have some advantages. So it, it varied how they, they operated. But, you know, certainly... Um, you know, they, 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 I think Prigozhin cared a lot about those personnel. And I think also it's one of the reasons why, you know, we're seeing soldiers sign contracts with Wagner during the Battle of Bakhmut because they thought that, you know, one, they're getting paid better. And two, they're probably going to be taken care of more. And that the leadership there cared more about these guys surviving than maybe the Russian Ministry of Defense did. And if you look at some of the battles against Vuldor elsewhere, like you can get that impression, right? Where um, some of the most elite Russian units took extremely heavy losses. And it was very clear this battle is not going to work for them. They didn't have the capabilities of overcoming Ukraine's defenses there. 
and yet they kept doing these kind of assaults and you know led to very heavy losses and nothing you know nothing to show for it. Jack, uh, Rob mentioned some of the names, some of the call signs. Who are the most critical field commanders right now that are left in Wagner? Talk a little bit about them and how many of them you think there are. So this, similarly to the sort of larger structure of Wagner, changed a lot over the course of the war in Ukraine, as Rob pointed out. Um, there's some folks that have great experience that have been brought in and promoted even since that time, so over a relatively short time horizon. But I'd say that the sort of most significant people, um, Alexander Kuznetsov, Radabor, another one who appeared in that infamous photo with, with Putin um, alongside Utkin and, and Troshev. Um, he's certainly one of the most respected. I've been with the organization since the start. Um, he's someone where if you talk to fighters, they'll tell you that he continued to serve in the, in the front lines, even when a lot of the other assault detachment commanders were starting to pull back and be more cautious. Um, and specifically just seems to be one of the fighters that has the most combat experience and generally just seems to be the most respected in terms of a, a willingness to put himself on the line for his men, uh, willingness to make decisive decisions on the battlefield. He has a lot of legend surrounding him, and often it's difficult to extricate that from his actual performance and personality. He's certainly very feared in other parts of the organization. Um, there are other assault detachment commanders, like uh, Rob mentioned Zombie, Boris Nizhevinok. He's someone who's pretty well-known because he's being put front and center. Um, generally, again, I've heard things around him being competent, but I think that a lot of it is he's somebody that has solid military experience before he came into Wagner. He can project professionalism. And because of that, he has been put as one of the sort of talking heads in Ukraine. The same goes for Anton Elizarov, Lotus. Um, Lotus, I think, generally has some less respect. It's hard to attribute those to specific incidents just because a lot of it's rumor. But when you see people talking about them, they, they certainly hold different commanders at totally different levels of uh, expectations for how they perform and their level of trust in them. Um, Lotus, like Zombie, is somebody that's been put forward by the organization as a representative, as a face of the org. Um, and so for that reason, I think he may not have been selected purely by virtue of the fact that he's someone who's particularly effective, but also because he's somebody that they can trust to to be a, a presentable person to represent Wagner. And we saw increasingly over the course of the war in Ukraine, various commanders becoming more visible, not just Prigozhin. Um, and even after the, 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 the mutiny, a lot of these guys were being used as mouthpieces to do things like smear Troshev after he went over to the Ministry of Defense, um, to do things like uh, make specific comments that were very much in line with the kinds of criticism that Prigozhin would make of the Ministry of Defense. So they were being sort of leveraged for that same reason. The other folks that I think are important are obviously those that are still in Africa. Um, so like there's there's some people there that reportedly run, for example, Mali operations. It's a guy named Maslov who's kind of risen from apparently being a driver in the very early days, all the way up to being in charge of a specific theater. Um, in Belarus, you've got Pioneer, who is recently uh, established as being at least nominally the head of what they're doing in Belarus. Um, again, that's less oriented around combat operations, more focused on training. But nonetheless, I think it'll be important um, to make sure that the Ministry of Defense can capture Pioneer, make some kind of deal with him, um, somehow engage with him if they're going to resolve things uh, in, in a neat way with the fighters who are still in Belarus. Um, so there's still a lot of human capital that's out there. And that human capital is pretty spread around. It's pretty well embedded. And I think to, to Rob's point about replacing Wagner and a lot of these countries, a lot of that human capital, a lot of those, those, those assault detachment commanders and the people that report directly to them, 
they've built strong relationships with the security forces in the countries that they're operating in. And I think that's going to be really hard to replace. And that's one of the reasons that it would be much, much easier if the Ministry of Defense can bring these guys on side. There's this sort of weird phenomenon I see with um, Rob described, I think, very aptly that um, the delay is likely due to the fact that the security services wanted to be able to organize something that was going to be more effective than just knocking off Prigozhin the day after the coup and having to deal with uh, a lot of fallout and probably unforeseen blowback. Um, I also think that sort of conversely, getting rid of Prigozhin and Utkin, it may have turned out, was also necessary in order to have a resolution for what they were going to do with those fighters in places like Africa and Belarus. As long as Prigozhin was still around and able to at least somewhat credibly offer the opportunity for there to be continuing membership in Wagner and uh, some of the benefits that Rob described around that, it was going to be really, really hard to pull guys away from Wagner into another structure where they could suspect that they were not going to be paid as well, not going to be treated as well, and that their initiative wouldn't be rewarded in the same way. So I think that getting rid of those two... It strikes me if you put yourself in the shoes of one of these guys, let's stuck in, let's say, Mali right now, you're facing a couple of immediate issues, right? So first of all, who's going to be paying you, right? The Concord group may continue to pay your salaries or it may not because, you know, the the guy in charge is is gone now. So I'm not sure that anyone in St. Petersburg is going to be very attentive to your needs out, out there in Mali versus trying to rob the organization blind and trying to set up their own future, right? And then there's a question of where you're going to get logistical supplies, whether it's food or munitions, weapons, etc. Who's going to take care of all of that? And maybe that presents the opportunity to the GRU or others in MOD to go to these guys and say, look, you're, you're stuck out here. No one's paying you. You're not getting the weapons and munitions you need. We're going to take care of, of all of that for you. All you have to do is just sign this contract, right? That can start to look very, very appealing once you're all alone. Yeah, I think that definitely this has created a, a situation where it is much more appealing by virtue of the fact that there aren't really other options. Um, I wrote a piece for Riddle Russia that came out this Monday, fortunately, before all this happened. And fortunately, also uh, was based largely around a lot of the dilemmas that the Russian state continues to have to face and that a lot of the SALT attachment commanders and other leadership that survive amongst Wagner will have to consider. Um, and a big element of that is what shape the organization could take if it's subsumed in MOD or if it were to try to survive on its own. Um, I really don't think there's a possibility of it trying to survive on its own without sort of its major caretakers in terms of the corporate infrastructure, which is really the part of the organization that Prigozhin could lay claim to. That's what he had built, that corporate infrastructure of 350 plus companies Um a wave of, of bureaucrats that were handling all of that, et cetera. Um, without that, it's nigh impossible for these guys to make sure that they're going to get fed, get moved, get armed. Um, and I do think that, yeah, that kind of uh, ultimatum would probably be one that's very effective. What happens afterwards and their ability to continue executing on behalf of their, their, their clients or their hosts in some of these countries is another question. And I think that'll lead us to some other very interesting dilemmas if it happens to be that Wagner's... Uh, sort of capacity to operate and defend their hosts is uh, greatly diminished in these countries where they have indeed come to play a pretty important role in terms of the security balance, whether that's against Islamist uh, militant groups in the Sahel or against uh, sort of consortium of rebel groups in the Central African Republic. It strikes me that one of the qualities that people may underappreciate of Prigozhin's 
and look, he's absolutely a very despicable guy. Let me be very clear. This is not someone to be admired. He is the guy that orders people to have their skulls smashed with sledgehammers, of course, tortures people, executes people. Not a nice guy. But the one thing that he was really good at, I think, is his organizational quality. The guy has started and ran a lot of businesses, right? And even just if you think about the logistical challenge of in the midst of the fight in Ukraine to go around, recruit all these convicts, figure out the training for them, equipping you know, putting them in, into formations, launching assault units with those guys, that takes a lot of organizational expertise and know-how. And it's not clear to me that the Russian military could have done that half as well as, as he's managed to do. And that's on top of continuing all these operations all over Africa in different countries, different political environments, different logistical challenges of uh, flowing people in, flowing logistical supplies in, and so forth. Um, he was, you know, even though not a, not a military genius by any means, at an organizational level, seems to have been just absolutely essential to this organization. Do, do you agree, Jack? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that, yeah, similarly, we can tend to uh, focus on the aspects of, of Prigozhin as a character that are obviously vary from being just absolutely despicable to being the sort of like caricature of the supervillain. Um, but Undeniably, he was an important part of uh, why Wagner was successful. I think part of that was that he created a huge culture of fear, um, which you can see documented in the, the emails of the employees of the Wagner Group that have since been leaked. Um, a lot of what they're doing is trying to, to cover themselves and make sure that they can't be accused of impropriety. Um, but what that did lead to was an expectation that there would be results. Um, and I think that within the broader sort of Wagner organization, whether we're talking about the commercial side, the political technologist, the administrators, and the fighting men, there was an expectation that you would perform. And if you didn't, um, there would be consequences. And those consequences could be quite nasty up to being physically punished. Even if you weren't within the, the, the actual fighting force of Wagner, there were employees that were subject to corporal punishment. Um, so I think that part of this was that there was a, there was a heavy stick component uh, as well as the carrot component around things like promotion based on merit. Um, in addition to that, definitely he had a lot of experience in business, uh, was well-connected. And I think that a major part of it was uh, Prigozhin's overall ambition. Um, ambition to, I, I don't think that he was somebody that aspired to, to become the leader of Russia, but nonetheless would like to be part of the inner circle and enjoy the access to rents, the security, the influence um, that folks that are, that are close to Putin do enjoy. You never know. Um, I, that, I actually think that, uh, you know, if you look at his public statements over last year, he's become quite, quite a populist. And I, I, I wouldn't rule it out that had he lived, if he's indeed dead, that he did have political aspirations, perhaps post-Putin, perhaps even to challenge Putin one day. But he was clearly building a media persona, a public political persona, even if he wasn't participating directly in the political process. Definitely. It's a shame we can't ask him now. But um, I think it was yeah, pretty clear that he, like Putin, did aspire to be a great man of Russian history um, in many ways. I think, you know, we talk about Wagner, we talk about Prigozhin, but it, it's a relative, right? It's a comparison. And the comparison is the Russian ministry of defense and the Russian military. And so when Wagner is more effective at things, it's, it's you know, it's quite notable because the Russian military has done a poor job of a lot of these things. And all militaries, I think, suffer to some extent about whether or not they have the right incentive structure in place and whether or not they're results oriented. Um, I think it's very true for the Russian military where, you know, promotions are not necessarily based on competency, but on other factors. 
Um, and, you know, even when guys fail, they still get promoted. And, you know, we've seen that in this war as well. Um, and that, you know, I think what Prigozhin brought is that when you asked before the Jack, when the Jack explained as well, even though he has a military background, um, he chose the right people to lead the organization. So Ukin has a lot of credibility with fighters. Um, he brought in the right people who are experienced guys. Many of these soldiers detachment commanders have, you know, background as Spetsnaz officers who fought in Chechnya elsewhere. You know, Radabor was part of uh, Senej, the the GRU Spetsnaz unit that would, would basically would become the, um, the the main unit of Russian SSO, is, is Special Operations Command. Um, so a lot of these figures had that kind of credibility. What Prigozhin realized is that he didn't have to micromanage this. It was, you select the right people, and then you, you know, his role was basically to have the right political connections and then get them the right kind of financial support and other kind of, econ, you know, equipment support and things of that nature. And and it was clear, you know, in Syria and elsewhere, is that Wagner commanders got very angry with the ministry defense for a variety of reasons, um, often because they weren't getting supported properly and they were doing the real fighting. That was, you know, a criticism in Syria, a criticism here in, in, in Ukraine as well. And I think they, they appreciate that Prigozhin would go to try to get Putin to other people to lobby on their behalf. And so he, he played that role, I think, in an important way. And, you know, Jack says, too, it's really hard to create the right culture organizations, particularly military or paramilitary organizations. And one of the things that Wagner had, at least, you know, in, in, to a better extent than the Russian Ministry of Defense, is that it's more results-oriented. There is more of an incentive structure to perform a certain way to achieve certain goals. And, and as Jack's you know, saying, there is a fear that if you do not perform your job properly, right, the consequences could be extreme. And, you know, we knew about the stories in Bakhmut. A lot of the stories um, and the anecdotes are true, right? I mean, prisoners were not allowed to retreat. And they, they, did, they didn't retreat because um, their life or, the, you know, the, the, the length of their life was going to be better assaulting in these kind of, uh, you know, very unlikely to survive uh, waves against Ukrainian forces than they were if they retreated because they knew they'd get, you know, assassinated. He, he brought back... He brought back Stalin's tactics during World War II, right? The smirch tactics that if you step back, you're going to get executed. Yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, and I think also like commanders, there's some, you know, anecdotes of commanders who, you know, pull back, wouldn't go forward, getting executed on the spot. You know, those kind of things were occurring. Um, you know, this is not an exaggeration. And absolutely, if, you know, the, the, the reason this was effective on Bakhmut is that typically if you have an assaulting force, if the defender inflicts maybe 20% attrition on a squad or platoon, right, that unit's probably going to fall back, right? That's, that's you know, too many casualties to probably continue pushing. With these convict units, you know, Ukrainian units would have to maybe kill all of them or would have to, you know, inflict 80, 90% casualties uh, before they stop because they had no other choice. And that means, you know, it's, it's a much tougher fight. Um, it required more ammunition. It, it's, it's, you know, much more arduous on a defender. And ultimately, it was an effective, you know, it was, an, it, it was somewhat effective, but it depended on um, playing by a set of rules that was not, you know, permissible in the Russian military. That would not be permissible in most militaries because it was so draconian. And again, that was part of the Wagner culture, right? Can you recreate that? You know, maybe, but it's it's not it's not that simple. And we start pulling out these, you know, more experienced commanders who have respect from the guys who are fighting there. And and again, I think you know Wagner was was you know perceived as having better leadership than most Russian military units which is why guys, the Russian military, are signing contracts with Wagner to this war. Um, and to recreate that would be difficult. And ultimately, Prigozhin played a role in that. Woodkin played a role in that. Um, and these assault attachment commanders, right, and, and we don't know what they're going to do, they all play a role in that. And so, you know, when we talk about what, what, whatever this 
organization will be long term, whether it's Wagner or Redute or, you know, they take over some of these people. You know, the culture could change, the organization could change. Um, a lot of that is, is really unknown. And um, it will be it'll be interesting to see exactly what that looks like, you know, a month or two from now. Well, look, guys, there's still so much unknown. We, we don't have the confirmation of their deaths. We don't know who was behind it, uh, if it was indeed an assassination. But there, there's a couple of things that are very clear to me. One is that however this plane, this Embraer jet went down, it probably was not because uh, someone missed to do a, an oil change. And the other thing that's pretty clear is that in the Game of Thrones, if you don't win, you die. And Prigozhin certainly played with fire all of his life from a very young age when he set his, himself on a path of crime till the very end, uh, if it is indeed his end. So the one thing I, I will I want to say, and, and Rob, curious for your thoughts on this, but it was interesting how when you and I and the rest of the team were in Ukraine talking to Ukrainian officials, very few people there cared about Wagner and thought it was relevant to their war, at least at, at this stage of their war. And talking to people in Kiev today, they were sort of watching this with interest, but almost disconnected interest. Yeah, let's take out the popcorn, but we also have a war to fight. And whatever happens with Prigozhin is not really going to affect our ability to continue this counteroffensive or even affect most likely the outcome of this war. So it seems to me as, as interesting as this episode is, it is also interesting to see how much disinterest there is in Ukraine in this whole issue. Yeah, I mean, look, um, Wagner's not playing a, a role in the war right now. Um, it was never clear after Bakhmut what role they'd play. When they were replaced by the Russian Ministry of Defense units in, like, you know, the first week of June, um, you know, it, some of those Russian MOD units that were attached to them reverted back to the Russian MOD. Um, obviously, the Russian MOD kept all the artillery and other things that were, that were theirs. I think some of the equipment was transferred back to the Russian MOD after the mutiny as well. And some convict units were transferred over to the Russian MOD and became Storm Z units, which they're using. So, you know, it was never fully clear what role Wagner played after that. Um, I thought at the time the mutiny probably would not have that much effect on the war because particularly, you know, Bakhmut obviously has been a, a key part of the fighting, but, you know, the main axe of advance has been down in Orihov in the Saporizh area. Wagner was not playing a role down there. Um, the Russian MOD units down there were not, didn't have much role with Wagner either. So there's, you know, little reason to think it would have too much role there. And, you know, I think the same thing today, right? I don't think whatever happened today, it's not clear to me it's going to have much of an effect on the counteroffensive. Um, you know, and, you know, one of the significant things, and I think we talked about this before, um, was that in, in some ways this counteroffensive was a significant moment after the mutiny because it would be, it, it, the mutiny could have exacerbated really significant issues in Russia, including Shoigu and Gorasimov's positions. And depending on how this counteroffensive went, right, that could have been a significant factor. And thus far, the, the Russian instrument, the defense has fought pretty well. They defended pretty well in the South. They had pretty good defenses. Um, you know, they've used their resources much better than other parts of the war. And so in some ways, I think Shoigun Gorasimov's position might be stronger now than it was before, because not only did they kind of pass this loyalty test for, to Putin that obviously Prigozhin failed, but also, the, you know, the Russian military is, is performing a little better. Now, th that may not you know, when they go on the offensive again, they may not may, may not succeed again or they may have more issues. But I think that's, a, you know, it's a factor here. Um, so I, I'm not sure any of this is going to affect the war, you know, directly. It was never clear if Wagner was going to have another role in the war going forward. Um, so I think it's important to keep in mind, you know, this is a very significant moment, obviously. It's very significant, I think, for, for domestically in Russia, significant, uh, you know, for a lot of these uh, Russia's relationship with Africa and other countries. 
in terms of the war in Ukraine, not clear to me that it's going to have that much of an impact anytime soon. Well, most importantly, it's very significant for Jack's book that thankfully right. he hasn't yet uh, finalized, so he can at least write the ending for it. But the other thing that, that I think is significant is this whole episode with Surovikin, because this defensive line that you've talked about that is giving Ukrainians so much heartburn right now, to say the least, is called the Surovikin line for a reason, that he was the most competent general of this war, closely affiliated with Wagner. He set up not just the lines and the fortifications, but the entire defense plan for this offensive. And he's the one guy that took the fall for this mutiny, right? He was detained, put under house arrest, apparently, and now dismissed. Yeah, I mean, Surovikin, it's interesting to see what will happen. So, um, you know, he was apparently dismissed, but he's still the MOD. He very well made pop up again, right? Remember with, with Alexander Lopin, he was um, relieved as central military district commander, um, group, you know, central grouping force commander as well. He now is, I think, deputy commander of the ground forces, but he was also seen, you know, playing a role in Ukraine after that. And is also seen as, uh, you know, moving vehicles around Belgrade, you know, doing whatever. Um so, you know, people get really- but, but see, but Rob, the difference is that if you're lapping, you can be dismissed temporarily for incompetence. That's not a fatal mistake. But perhaps being competent and perhaps uh, also disloyal, that you cannot do. True. But, you know, I, I think there's still some question about what Sorvikin did. I, I think the idea is that he may have had some forewarning, but didn't necessarily play an active role supporting the, supporting the mutiny. Um, it also depends what Wagner looks like, right? And Prigozhin and Utkin, if, they, if they're dead, if Wagner is, has been diminished and kind of is no longer a threat, then, you know, maybe Sorovikin is not one again. And, you know, this might be a quite significant, uh, uh, you know, signal to anyone who might think about coming after Putin again in the future. Um, so I, I think right now it's still, it's still an open question about Sorovikin. Um, I do think, you know, Toplinsky is, is arguably maybe the most significant general fighting the war right now. The the VDV commander is also seems to have a kind of broader remit to, to you know, go and fix things because other commanders have been less effective. Um, I think there are some cases actually where Russia is promoting um, better commanders in some cases. Um, so, you know, that'll be interesting going forward. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, look, it, it's still a lot. We have more questions than answers right now. Um, I think Sorovica is part of this. Um, I think, you know, on one hand, Sorovica was never seen as as a kind of genius, right? I mean, I think he made some you know reasonable decisions when after Kharkiv happens, when uh, the Russian military is in trouble, right? To, to deciding to to you know build good defenses, you know, trying to figure out mobilization. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily make that into him being a genius. I think he made reasonable decisions. I think the better example is that so many. It's Russians all relative, right? Compared to the other commanders, he he made good exactly. decisions. Yeah, and we, I mean, we've yeah. talked about this before that he is perhaps the ultimate survivor in the Russian military, aside from Shoigu, in that he's already participated in one coup in 1991 when he was responsible. His unit was responsible for deaths of three people that were protesting Pooch, uh, the hardliner Pooch, in 1991. He served brief time in jail, was let go, got promoted, was responsible for the death, I think, of a subordinate under suspicious circumstances got through that now dealing with this latest issue so you you could probably never count him out no he's in the jail twice because he, he was in the jail for the the in, the in the the coup attempt um and then he was when he's at the friends academy in, in the mid 90s he also allegedly played some role in in smuggling weapons or giving it a you know only authorized weapon to someone went to jail again got out and then when he he was the first commander of russia's military police so some journalists kind of raised 
you know, some eyebrows here that someone who's been in jail multiple times um, that has this kind of colorful record that he's the first guy to be put in the military police. But, you know, um, look, it's a sense of loyalty. And so, you know, I, it's hard to kind of say if the outside, maybe Putin thinks Sorovika is loyal to him. Maybe he thinks that Sorovika was not loyal to Shoigu and Grasimov. Maybe that's what he thinks this is about. You know, all this is kind of, you know, trying to read tea leaves that we can't necessarily see. So it's, it's really hard to say. Um, I would just say, look, you know, this war, we've seen so many extraordinary things. I would not count him out. I would not count out, you know, different things happening as well. Um, I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded about how this might go. Um, but, you know, if, if, look, if the Russian military has more issues going forward and Gerasimov at some point gets relieved, which is possible, sort of, can might be someone they put back in to replace him, right? Maybe things look different six months from now. You know, I think this war is going to still be going on, so um, I would not count him out. Well, that's it from us. Rest in peace or pieces, Evgeny Prigozhin. You were a despicable, horrible human being. The world is much better without you, but you were entertaining and unique. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us.